it is my pleasure to introduce Michael K. Kellogg to all of you. Michael was educated in philosophy at Stanford and Oxford and in law at Harvard Law School. He is a founding and managing partner at Kellogg, Hansen, Todd, Feigl, and Frederick, PLLC, here in Washington, D.C. He is the author of four other books, including The Wisdom of the Middle Ages. Uh, This evening, he is going to talk about his new book, The Wisdom of the Renaissance. This book, following his study on medieval thought, provides an engaging and broad survey of Renaissance culture and art by going through several, several important works and figures of the Renaissance, including Cervantes, Montan, Petrarch, and Shakespeare. Uh, Publishers Weekly in the review of the book writes that Kellogg's writing is so skillful as to leave one impressed. This clearly and cogently written book will be a valuable resource for readers whenever they have a question about Kellogg's subject that runs deeper than what Wikipedia can supply. Everyone, let us all welcome Michael K. Kellogg. Thank you for that kind introduction, and thank you, everybody, for coming out. So when we think about the Renaissance, we ordinarily think about art. Take the year 1511 in Rome. Raphael is putting the finishing touches on his masterpiece, The School of Athens, in what became known as the Raphael Rooms of the Vatican. Just down the hall, Michelangelo is still at work on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Leonardo is in Milan, but within two years, he will be in Rome as well, painting the Mona Lisa. This is the period that Jacob Burkhardt called the High Renaissance, when changes in the art of perspective, the use of vibrant colors, and the recapturing of classical forms literally transformed the way we see the world. But it's important to recognize that those changes wasn't just limited to art. It was our entire conception of ourselves and our place in the universe that was changing. Also in Rome in 1513 was the writer Baldessare Castiglioni, who was a friend of both Raphael and Michelangelo. It's unfortunate that no one reads Castiglioni today because he was one of those writers that captures an entire era in his work. In a dedicatory note to his work, A Book of the Courtier, he wrote, I send you this book as a portrait of the court of Urbino, not by the hand of Raphael or Michelangelo, but by that of a lowly painter and one who only knows how to draw the main lines without adorning the truth with pretty colors or making by perspective art that which is not seemed to be. Making that which is not seemed to be. Despite the the disclaimer, that is, of course, exactly what Castiglione himself was doing. He claims his work is simple and artless, but in fact, it is consummate art and highly complex. And note how he self-deprecatingly calls himself a lowly painter, but puts himself in the same sentence with Raphael and Michelangelo. (laughs) And I actually think he deserves to be there. The Book of the Courtier is his school of Athens. It is his Sistine Chapel. And it was inspired by the same source. Pico della Mirandola was the Neoplatonic philosopher of the Renaissance. Nothing is more wonderful than man, he wrote in a 1486 book called On the Dignity of Man. He wanted to celebrate 
the capacities of man as given by God and thereby partaking of the divine. Pico even imagined God addressing his new creation as follows. I have placed thee at the center of the world, neither heavenly nor earthly, neither mortal nor immortal have we made thee. Thou art the molder and maker of thyself. Thou mayest sculpt thyself into whatever shape thou dost prefer. Now, if we wanted a definition of the Renaissance, we could do worse than thou art the maker and molder of thyself. In the Middle Ages, men and women were cast into the shadow by the twin institutions of feudalism and the Catholic Church. The individual was submerged in these larger structures and roles were fixed and determined for both men and women. The Renaissance brought individuals back into the classical sunlight and provided them with a new vision of men and women as makers and molders of themselves. And you could see that, of course, in the paintings of the Renaissance. You can hear it in the polyphonic church music that was developed at the time, and particularly in the arias of Monteverdi, who wrote the first opera that's still in the modern repertoire, which was Orfeo in 1607. But the same sort of transformation is to be found in the poems, the plays, the novels, the letters, and the essays of the period, from the death of Chaucer in 1400 to the death of Cervantes and Shakespeare one day apart in 1616. The Renaissance marks a progression in human thought and in human consciousness that brought us from the Middle Ages to the brink of the modern world. And that progression was driven by a pent-up hunger for knowledge. Gutenberg created his printing press in 1450. He first printed a Vulgate version of the Latin Bible. By the end of the 15th century, just 50 years later, there were 15 volumes of 40,000 different titles in print. By 1600, there were 10 times that many. It was also an age of geographical exploration with new trade rates, routes to the Far East, and the discovery of the Americas. By the start of the 17th century, the map of the world, at least in his outlines, was largely filled in. And out of that ferment came a new humanist ideal of self-fashioning, the cultivation and formation of the self as an individual human being. And Castiglione was the greatest proponent of that movement. He was trying to define an ideal type one that doesn't exist in the world, but that we can use as a model and inspiration for our own growth. His courtier is a master of languages, of arms, of athletics, of literature, of manners, of art, of music, of humor. He's a master, in short, of life itself. He is the perfect Renaissance man, what we came to understand as the Renaissance man, and his counterpart, described in book three, is the perfect Renaissance woman, who is every bit as equal in education and in the arts of conversation and governance. But Castiglione's greatest contribution to Western thought may be a single word, sprezzatura.
It's a word he invented, which means a sort of graceful ease or studied nonchalance. So think Roger Federer playing tennis <laughs> or Joshua Bell on the violin. They display effortless mastery and grace. Learning any art requires tremendous work and effort. But once one attains mastery, the effort that went in to learning the art needs to disappear into the performance. Thus the paradox expressed by Castiglione, we call true art that which was done does not appear to be art. Genuine mastery and sprezzatura are the same across the entire range of human endeavors. And in that regard, Castiglione had a huge influence on the remainder of the Renaissance. But as he himself notes, no contrary is without his contrary. So he doesn't ignore the darker side of courtiership. After all, to be a courtier, there has to be a court. And a court implies a king or a prince with absolute power. So the courtier is working in a system of despotic rule with all the compromises that that entails. And as the work continues, the charm of sprezzatura begins to look, look a lot like what another character in the dialogue calls circumspect dissimulation, which is not so far removed, if you think about it, from cal calculated cunning. And that brings me to the second theme of the Renaissance. The Renaissance saw the formation of the great nation states of Europe, Spain, France, England, and the Habsburg Empire. They were constantly fighting with one another in themselves and over the spoils of a fragmented Italy. It was also a period that saw not just exploration, but also the exploitation of foreign countries and the destruction of ancient civilizations in South America. And of course, it saw the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, which brought us not just reform, but also persecution in equal measure, and led to the devastating religious wars of the 17th century. So maybe Pico was wrong. Maybe man is not so wonderful. Perhaps he's more beast than angel. And that counter-narrative begins with Machiavelli also in 1513, which is when he wrote The Prince. Machiavelli's overriding goal was to lead to a united Italy that would be strong enough to take on the great powers of Europe and hold its own. Failing that, he wanted to restore the Florentine Republic in which he had played a key part. And he firmly believed that that republic fell apart because it had a well-intentioned but indecisive and ineffective leader. So he rejected any suggestion that the leader of a government should possess Christian virtues. It's okay to pretend to have them, and that's even a good thing. But if you want to be a good leader, you have to be willing to exercise power and violence to maintain order and to prevent enemies, both internal and external, from destroying the state. So his seven precepts for highly effective princes, including the most famous, which is that it's better to be feared than loved, 
is really a playbook not just for the Renaissance prince, but for modern politicians as well. Indeed, you could annotate every seven, every one of those seven precepts with examples from both sides of the aisle of modern politics. So this darker vision of man was also the driving force behind the Reformation. Man is inherently sinful, Luther thought. And he argued in 1517 that salvation is only possible through the grace of God, not through man's own efforts. So Luther rejected free will, most of the sacraments, as well as the pay-to-pray aspects of the church, including the sale of indulgences, which was funding the art of Michelangelo and Raphael and the building of St. Peter's Cathedral. The church, like any good Machiavellian, would have simply crushed Luther. But he was protected by various northern princes who were tired of seeing money flow from their countries off to Rome. So it's important to recognize that the Reformation was as much a political and social event as it was a doctrinal one. And economic forces were incredibly powerful in driving that, particularly in England, where the only doctrinal issue was that Henry VIII wanted a divorce from his wife. And the only reason he couldn't get one was because the Pope was literally a prisoner of Charles V, the emperor. And Charles V was the nephew of Henry's wife, Catherine of Aragon. So that is essentially why England is now Protestant instead of Catholic. Now, Thomas More, of course, ended up on the chopping block on Tower Hill for opposing that divorce. And his good friend, Erasmus, could easily have suffered an even worse fate for, among other sins, advocating that the Bible be translated into vernacular languages so that it could be read by or to ordinary men and women in languages that they would understand without the intermediation of the priesthood. Now, it's hard to believe it today, but people were burned at the stake for possessing vernacular translations of the Bible. And indeed, the church set itself so resolutely against the spirit of the Renaissance that many of the authors I discussed in my book ended up on the index of forbidden books, which was started in 1559 and not abolished quite incredibly until 1966. The church essentially bade time stand still, just as it insisted that the earth stand still. Well, as Galileo murmured after his forced recantation, a pur se muove, and yet it moves. So that brings me to the third great theme of the Renaissance, which is folly. We're not just simultaneously wonderful and terrible, Renaissance on authors concluded, we are often deeply ridiculous and can only laugh at our own pretensions. And I say we advisedly, Erasmus in his Praise of Folly and Rabelais' Gargantua and Pantagruel invoke a carnival mood of laughter that is not directed at this or that group, but embraces us all. And it lives with us today in TV shows like The Office or Curb Your Enthusiasm, which are funny and sometimes cringingly so because we recognize ourselves so much in those shows. 
Better to write of laughter than of tears, Rabelais explained, for laughter is proper to man. So all three of these themes come together in the final three authors that I cover, Cervantes, Montaigne, and Shakespeare. Don Quixote, which is arguably, which is certainly the first and arguably the greatest of all novels, is a parody of Renaissance self-fashioning. Alonzo Quixano is a 50-year-old man living in a small town in, out in the middle of nowhere, and he suddenly wakes up one morning and decides that he's going to reinvent himself as Don Quixote de la Mancha, a knight errant fighting for truth and justice. Now, I inevitably, Alonzo Quixano's narrative in which he's Don Quixote clashes with reality. And therein lies both the humor and the pathos of the book. And the exact mix between humor and pathos changes depending on the age we are when we read it and when we reread it. But Don Quixote is all of us, because all of us create narratives for our lives that at best, at best, correspond uneasingly to reality. And those narratives are increasingly drawn from art or from novels or from other modern forms of art, which is a reversal of the classical thought of mimesis that art imitates life. It ends up being that life starts to imitate art. So like Cervantes, Montaigne has very little faith in the Renaissance perfectibility of man. For Montaigne, a cheerful acceptance of our own fallibility is the beginning of wisdom. He focuses the narrative of his essays on the passing stream of his own thoughts and experiences. He tries to shed the last traces of medievalism, scholasticism, and religious and philosophical doctrines in favor of a direct encounter of the world. And despite his own vast learning, Montaigne is highly skeptical of books, of general precepts, and of moral abstractions. He is content to live, as he puts it, without fixed points of support. And he condemns what he calls the philosophical scorn for transitory and mundane things. So I'd like to read one passage, at least, from Montaigne's essays. When I dance, I dance. When I sleep, I sleep. Yes, and when I walk alone in a beautiful orchard, if my thoughts have been dwelling on extraneous incidents for some part of the time, for some other part, I bring them back to the walk, to the orchard, to the sweetness of this solitude, and to me. Nature has observed this principle like a mother, that the action she has enjoined on us for our need should also give us pleasure. And she invites us to them, not only through reason, but also through appetite. So Montaigne is the original advocate for mindfulness, an attempt to be present in experience and to observe the passing array closely and to feel it keenly, but without sentimentality. And finally, there is Shakespeare whose comedies, tragedies, histories, and romances sound the full range of human experience. Harold Bloom credits him with the invention of the human, 
which is only somewhat exaggerated. Yet Shakespeare's harder to pin down even than Montaigne. He has what John Keats called negative capability, an openness to experience without the distortion of any preconceived ideological framework. He disappears into his work. His writings demonstrate no particular faith beyond what Aristotle called the higher truth of poetry. Yet Shakespeare, too, fully internalized the various strands of Renaissance thought that we've discussed. In fact, Hamlet himself articulates the Renaissance ideal in stirring terms that could have come directly out of Pico della Mirandolo. What a piece of work man is, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. And yet he adds, this quintessence of dust delights me not. Hamlet has thoroughly absorbed the view from Machiavelli through Montaigne of man's imperfections and the vices that parade as virtues. But he cannot accept it with Montaigne's amused shrug. Hamlet is tortured by it. So how is he to reconcile his artistic, moral, and spiritual longings with the rage, lust, and ambition he finds within himself? How is he to integrate the man and the beast into a coherent human being with the grace and sprezzatura of Castiglione's courtier? He can't do it. And he's paralyzed and disgusted by the gap between what man is and what he ought to be. But since that isn't the only possible reaction to the paradox of man, I want to end with my favorite Shakespeare play and my favorite character in Shakespeare, um, if not in all literature, and that is Rosalind from As You Like It. Rosalind is every bit of match for Hamlet in wit and intelligence. And she's placed in a very similar situation. If you recall the play, her father, the true duke, has been banished to the uh, forest of Arden by his brother, who's usurped the throne. Her own life is at risk, causing her to flee the court disguised as a boy. But unlike Hamlet, who stews in his existential despair, Rosalind resolves to show more mirth than I am mistress of, which is a perfect Renaissance ideal. If you show mirth, you will ultimately feel mirth. Recall Castiglione's remark about making that which is not seem to be. Recall, too, that Shakespeare's female characters were played by boy actors. So Rosalind on stage is a boy playing a girl who dresses as a boy and then when she gets to the Forest of Arden, ends up acting the part of a girl to teach Orlando, with whom she is in love, how to woo his Rosalind. So there's a wonderful and very modern gender fluidity in the play. <laughs> but in all her forms, Rosalind is more joyfully alive, physically, spiritually, and intellectually than any other character in Shakespeare. Orlando, alas, is not her equal. Only Hamlet is that, and I actually don't think they would have gotten along. Hamlet would have been intimidated by Rosalind. So she wants to teach Orlando 
that it's possible to be wise and in love. Because even though love is the greatest of all follies, it is also the most essential. I would not be cured, youth, says Orlando. Neither would Rosalind. But she wants to desentimentalize love without sacrificing its intensity and enchantment. So when Orlando swears that he will love his Rosalind forever and a day, she responds, say a day without the ever. No, no, Orlando, men are April when they woo, December when they wed. Maids are May when they are maids, but the sky changes when they are wives. Rosalind can be ironic about love while still embracing it. Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, she explains to Orlando, but not for love. She can recognize love's folly and even its transience without foregoing its joy. And the same is true for life more generally. According to Rosalind, life stands before us in its infinite variety and absolute simplicity. We could take it cynically like the court fool Touchstone does, or gloomily like the poet Shakeways does in his All's the World's a Stage speech, or sentimentally as the shepherd Silvius does in his hapless wooing of Phoebe, or we could take it triumphantly. And that is Rosalind's takeaway from the Renaissance. Life, like love, is as you like it. And that is my takeaway from the Renaissance as well. So I don't have to say, I hope there are questions. I see we already have one. Yeah, so uh, thank you for your amazing talk. So could you uh, remind me or us of the forces that unleashed the Renaissance? Question one. Question two was, who was Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> Question one's easier. Um, obviously, it was a multiplicity of factors. Um, the rising of, first of all, the weather got better. Um, they had had a mini ice age, and, and there were crops, and they had plague and such. The weather got better. Um, the growing season was longer. Wars calmed down a bit, which allowed trade to develop, which led to a rising middle class of merchants and such. And actually learning um, um, classical languages and reading uh, became sort of a prerequisite for working in courts, uh, which expanded. So there was a much bigger middle class mm. and people just started demanding more freedom. Mm. And frankly, with the rediscovery of classical text, mm. there became a sense that, you know, the church doesn't know everything <laughs> and we can start thinking some of this out for ourselves and then the exploration and such. So there's a whole multiplicity of factors, I think, that went into it. And uh, with your second question, Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Okay. And I don't buy any of the, um, any of the alternative explanations. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, were there any great patrons, any Medicis of Renaissance literature? And if so, how was their influence manifest or not? That's a good question. You know, the development of the printing press actually allowed people, writers to do without patrons. Erasmus, for example, was the superstar bestseller of the 16th century. Um, 
Now, there wasn't a whole lot of copyright protection, so I'm not sure how much money he made from that. It's like Cervantes. I think he, they did have a copyright when he wrote part one of Don Quixote, but he sold it at a flat rate and and didn't make a lot of money. A patronage was, was there, um, but uh, not particularly strong for writers as it was for painters and sculptors because then the Pope would be able to fill up the Vatican with all this fine arts and, and kings would have, you know, fabulous palaces filled with, with wonderful things. So um, there was some patronage. Uh, oftentimes it took the form like Petrarch of getting sort of no-show jobs with the church. He'd be given various benefices that he would then farm it out to somebody else and yet collect, collect the money for it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your talk. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I had had you, you know, in one of my edu my classes coming up. There. <laughs> no, seriously, because a lot of people don't break it down into what the real meaning is. It's just names and dates and, you know, events. But that's for really good what you did. Um, okay, so what I'm getting around to is that the period of time we live in now you talked about the self and the, the idea of the self. The period of time we're living in now, which is moving quite rapidly, I think, in my opinion, is going to require an understanding of what is the self and how it's constructed and how it can be reconstructed and played with so it can be adapted to the reality that is existing now as opposed to the one when the, the concept of the self first got started. That, does that yeah, make sense? I, I believe passionately in that. I think that, um, well, Western civilization is kind of in bad order with modernism. Um, it's viewed as a bunch of dead white males <laughs> saying, you know, imposing their, their particular view on the world, which is no longer relevant. I think it's absolutely relevant. Um, to build a sense of the self. And they were dealing with the same sort of problems we are about man's role in a society. Now, fortunately, we don't live in a society with absolute monarchs and such, although perhaps there's some aspirations to that. But, um, um, but still, the, the sort of interplay, and I think Castiglione, with his views of... of sprezzatura and graceful ease and such uh, is something that we could use a lot more of. Do you see any of it out there now, current, in terms of new stuff? Hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I see people who are sounding those notes. I read a wonderful um, op-ed review piece today about Willa Cather's My Antonia which is about immigrants coming to the U.S. and trying to make their way in a, in a fairly hostile landscape and how we could learn from that today about what America's all about. And so I think um, older works of literature really can teach us a great deal. I'm interested in the... Uh the, the veering off a uh, single degree from, from the Roman Church uh, was a very risky proposition. And if you look at the 16th century, 
it's it's filled with personalities that did that. You know, there was there were a lot of reformers uh, before Martin Luther, and uh, and at the same time, it was just very risky business. I see it as a very dark time. Um, and what you talk about, it, the, the church really nails everything down. The Roman church nails everything down. Um, yeah, I, 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 I experienced a kind of a confusion about that, about that time. So many personalities, without repeating myself, so many uh, individuals who were uh, trying to do things. And by the way, you're bringing this tremendous optimism with these figures that, you know, that you're summarizing with. Um, which which is really great, and then at the same time I see this, you know, uh, potential for getting your head chopped off. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's definitely that, and frankly, it's not just us confused about that time. They were pretty confused at that time as well. You know, Erasmus was actually the leading advocate of reforms in the church, and he was highly popular with the popes and with high church officials and and politicians. Um, but as I, I will mangle the Latin if I try to say it, but the, the saying was um, Erasmus laid the eggs, Luther hatched them. And Montaigne was advocating a sort of modest reform that the church was actually highly receptive to. They knew that the selling of indulgences was an embarrassment to the church. They knew that some of the, the doctrines were, were sort of overly strict. But then Martin Luther came along and he started saying the same things that Erasmus was saying, but in a much more aggressive and hostile way. And as a consequence, the church, which had been leaning towards reform, bent over backwards um, in terms of conservatism and counter-reformation. And that really caused a huge split. And in the end of the day, Erasmus, who was so reasonable and, and tried to be the man in the middle in all this. His works were placed on the index of forbidden books. Uh, unsurprising that Machiavelli's were, uh, but even Montaigne ended up on there. And Montaigne basically tried to stay away from religion as much as he could, say, I'm gonna leave that to the church. Whatever the church says is fine with me. But then he made it clear that his view of the world didn't really need God. and. The, the church, they were good enough readers to figure that out. So on the list, he went. Hello. Uh, so Thomas More's death preceded by many years, what I would think to be, you know, one of the great places and times for philosophy being the English Enlightenment. My question is, uh, what, if any, influence do you think Thomas More's writings had on later thinkers, specifically thinking of like Hobbes or Locke, but really anyone you can think of? Yeah, now you're a book ahead of me because the Enlightenment comes next. But that's okay, I've, I've started work on it Thank already. You. <laughs> um, I don't think Moore had that much influence yeah. on Hobbes or Locke. You know, he wrote Utopia, and we all read it in high school, and I had to read it again to write, a, write on it. And it's very interesting because it, it's, he was good friends with, with Erasmus. I, in fact, Erasmus's book, I um, mean, praise and folly in Latin was a, was a pun on Moore's name. And um, Moore was the one, Erasmus was the one who suggested the name Utopia for Moore's book. So they were, they were intimate together. But 
Utopia has a very teasing quality to it. It's kind of a mirror. You look into it and out comes whatever whatever you think going in, particularly today when socialism is so discredited around the world. Um, people think it can't possibly um, be utopia becomes almost equivalent in meaning with this utopia. So I think um, people like Erasmus in his book, The Education of the Christian Prince, which was supposed to be a response to Machiavelli, and Machiavelli himself and the darker view of humankind had a huge influence on Hobbes uh, and later um, thinkers like Spinoza as well. Thank you. Okay, well, unless, unless there are other questions, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>